Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. I think we're at the cusp of something really exciting happening in the medical device industry. I think we're starting to see this crossover, if you will, of products that are traditionally consumer goods, consumer technology, starting to enter into the medical device space based on indications for use and claims and things of that nature. You know, we, we, you probably have seen the exciting news about the Apple Watch getting uh, de novos granted by FDA uh, in recent months. And I expect there will be a lot of other technologies that uh, we're going to see enter into the medical device realm in 2019 and beyond. And some of the other things that are starting to happen as well as uh, a company uh, wellness programs and health insurance providers are starting to also adopt uh, these products you know, for general wellness as well. So I, I think they'll see a lot more uh, news in the coming months and years about traditionally consumer good technology making their way into the medical device market. So Mike Drews and I from Mike from Vascular Science and I talk about this trend and, and some of the programs that are in place and certainly something you want to keep your eye on. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And you know, in the news lately, there's been a, a lot of activity, a lot of stories about technology and, and specifically like health related technologies. And, and, you know, of course, there was the news with a, a couple other uh, consumer good devices that are now starting, consumer technology devices rather, that are starting to enter into the med device space. And there's even some talk from insurance companies and employers that are starting to adopt and, and embrace these health related technologies as you know, as part of their wellness programs and, and insurance uh, reimbursement and things like that. So it's it's really kind of crazy. It seems to be moving really, really fast. And, you know, who better to talk about this from a regulatory perspective than, than my good friend, Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. So Mike, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thank you, John, for those kind words. And I look forward to today's discussion as always. All right. So you and I have, t have chatted both on uh, the podcast and, and just in conversation about uh, different technologies, different programs at the FDA um, to try to uh, enable these sorts of things. And, and I suspect we'll dive into some of that today. But, you know, the sort of the recent news that's, that seems to, well, some have called it some sort of precedent. Um, but, you know, Apple Watch now being classified as a medical device after getting two de novos granted from F FDA. I mean, what are your thoughts? Do you think there will be other consumer devices, other consumer technology that, that's going to follow the, this as a trend? I think the short answer, John, is absolutely yes. And, you know, Apple is a great example, but there are lots and lots of other examples and not necessarily recent. I mean, some of them go back a number of years. As we all know, uh, there's, a, there's a growing trend to use more and more medical devices outside of the traditional clinical setting, outside of a hospital or a doctor's office, in many cases, uh, home use devices. So the short answer is, yes, we're going to have more and more 
medical devices in that general category and, uh, and devices that are used outside of clinical settings and also devices that are used by non-clinical professionals, that is people that did not graduate from medical school or dental school or nursing school. And, um, you know, as medical device developers, that those do pose a, a number of uh, important challenges that we have to recognize. Yeah, I mean, Apple's going to get a lot of credit for kind of leading leading the way. <laughs> Maybe not exactly accurate as far as time and history are concerned, but nonetheless, I mean, you know, obviously everybody and knows who Apple is uh, in the world. You, you talk about some of the challenges as as from a development standpoint. Um, can you maybe elaborate a little bit on on what you mean and what some of those concerns might be? Well, sure. Just just one that comes to mind, and I believe that you and I have talked about this before, John, when it comes to usability. I have said many times, including at the FDA, that usability, of course, is important in all medical devices, but it's even more important in medical devices that are used by untrained users. In other words, it's one thing to to expect a physician who has graduated from medical school to know how to use a medical device properly, but somebody, you know, just uh, John Q. Smith or or Mary Jane Smith, Main Street, USA, they probably are not going to have that same level of expertise. So when it comes to usability testing, I think that usability requirements for devices that are used by by non-trained professionals are even more important. Regrettably, at least with the current guidance from FDA, they really do not distinguish uh, usability based on the skill level of the user, and I think that's that's a problem. That's something yeah. that any good any good medical device developer, uh, I would like to say, John, would know already, uh, and we would not need regulation to tell them that. But unfortunately, not not everybody does. So that's just one example, but of course there are others as well. Yeah, I mean, you just said any good medical device developer, but you know, we're talking about scenarios where. Uh, a lot of the, these companies, these devices that are, you know, they're not medical devices first, they're consumer devices first. So, you know, we, we don't really know or how well the the medical device aspects have been uh, factored into their development. Uh, um, of course, the regulations are known, but I guess this kind of brings an, another thought or question to mind. Do you see that there is a a gap, a gap, and, and you and I've talked about regulations. Do we need more regulations and that sort of thing in the past? But you know, considering now we've got this, this, these consumer technologies that are you know not med device first, now starting to cross over and become uh, med device for different indications. Do you see that there's any sort of gap in in the regulations that are out there? Well, that's a great question, John. So let's dig into that a little bit. It's interesting that you uh, differentiate. And to be fair, I've heard many people uh, sort of differentiate between a consumer device uh, versus a medical device. And to me, quite frankly, that's a distinction without a real difference. As a matter of fact, the regulation does not distinguish between a consumer device versus a medical device either. Uh, really, what it comes down to, I find it so interesting how so many people seem to have a, 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 such a difficult time um, understanding whether some of these consumer devices or the, the growing number of mobile medical apps coming onto the market, how do you know if they're a medical device or not? Well, the, the, the answer is actually quite simple. Does it fit the Code of Federal Regulations definition of what a medical device is? In other words, 
does it uh, is it intended to diagnose, treat, um, you know, a disease, injury, condition, yada yada yada? So that's what all of this comes down to. Who uses it? Whether it's somebody who has graduated from medical school or not, whether you have to have a prescription to buy it or not, whether you can buy it in Walmart or you have to get it from some sort of a medical uh, store or something or not, that really doesn't matter. What it what it comes down to is does it fit that definition? And let's take as a very simple example the uh, the Fitbit, right? So if you're providing information for heart rate, for example, is that a medical device? Well, nobody, including the FDA, can answer that question just based on the information that I've provided. It's impossible to answer. You have to look at the labeling. In other words, what is that heart rate information intended to be used for? If it's simply intended to be used as information, for example, when the person, and notice I'm not saying the, uh, a patient, John, because that's kind of biased, but when the person is exercising, if they want to just make sure that their uh, heart rate is within the target zone, so to speak, then that's not a medical device. However, if that heart rate is going to be used to say, well, this particular patient has a heart rate of less than 60 beats per minute, therefore they have a bradycardia, or if it's greater than 200 beats per minute, they have a tachycardia or something like that. Now we're starting to use that information in a more medical and a more clinical way, and that's when it starts to become a medical device. Does that make sense, John? It totally makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, it's all about the the indications. It's all about the claims. It's all about what you uh, or the, the company intends for that product to do. And I'll be honest, you know, I've never read uh, the indications for use uh, for a Fitbit. So, but you know, it, there is a lot of this this technology. I mean, it's to your point. I mean, mobile medical devices and or apps on phones, uh, devices like Fitbit. I I actually. Um, bought this device the other day. To, it's a little thing I wear on my finger. It has you know, some sort of sensors, but it communicates with my phone, but I wear it at night and to monitor uh, the quality of my sleep, you know? So there, there are all these things. I, I mean, is that a med device? I mean, and, and it's uh, somewhat rhetorical, but you know, to, to the point that you and I have talked about before, you know, not that FDA is is ahead of the curve, so to speak, from you know the advancement of technology. There, I feel like there is a divide between how quickly technology is advancing and and how well the regulatory infrastructure is. I mean, but at the same time, I mean, there are guidance documents about general wellness devices. There are guidance documents about mobile medical applications, and there. Are the pre-cert program and all these other things. So, you know, is it your opinion that regulations are more than sufficient to address this this onslaught of new technology venturing into that med device realm? Well, once again, John, that's a terrific question. And thanks for the opportunity to talk about this a little bit with you and your audience, because these are all very important issues, not just for those of us working as professionals in the medical device industry, but as consumers of healthcare in our society as well. We have a vested interest in all of this. So I'm often reminded of uh, what the uh, French philosopher, I can't remember his name, said, the more things change, the more they remain the same. I, you, you asked an interesting question. Do we have enough regulation? Oh, do we need more? Do we need less? This is a topic that we could, you know, spend an entire podcast just talking about in and of itself. But I believe that true, uh, sorry, I believe that uh, good reg- regulation is timeless. In other words, I believe that regulation should not be technology specific. 
regulation should be broad, should be general, kind of like the design controls, John. As you and I have talked about many times, the design controls, the guidance goes back to 1997. And some people have said that 20 years later, the FDA should update that. And I say absolutely not. Yeah, that no regulation way. Is, is, thank you. <laughs> that, that regulation is written very, very broadly, and it's designed in, in the even – the FDA even says this in the preamble to the QMS section of their website. It's one of my favorite sections of FDA's website, where they basically basically acknowledge that this is very broad, and it's intended to apply across the vast medical device universe. And FDA expects companies to take the general principles of what's described there and apply them to their particular situation. So I personally don't think that we need more regulation when it comes to these newer technologies, whether you want to call them consumer devices or not. I think that it all stems from the question of what is a medical device. By the way, I would add, John, and I won't insult your audience intelligence by reading the the definition of a medical device because it is quite long. It's a very complicated definition of uh, (laughs) a medical device. Absolutely and is. Einstein, Einstein, very smart guy. Einstein said, if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. So perhaps, uh, if anything, um, what we ought to do is see if we can come up with a better, perhaps a simpler definition of a medical device. Because unless, uh, unless and until people have a, a better understanding, we're going to continue to have confusion. Right. I have companies coming to me every single week. We're developing this particular kind of a product. Do we need to take this to the FDA or not? You know, and a lot of that stems from the mm, the ambiguous nature of that definition. Total, totally agree. I mean, that, that folks, uh, um, I'll uh, try to find that definition and uh, we'll put it, we'll share it in the, the text that accompanies the podcast. But it is very, very complicated. I mean, I've worked in this space for 20 years and, and some things are head scratchers for sure. <laughs> but, um, you know, there, to your point, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, a lot of the regulation, maybe all the regulation that we have, well, um, I better not say all, but at least the vast majority, especially around things like design control, it's somewhat timeless. Um, you know, of course, best practices evolve over time. But there are some who I've even read some of the, some articles from some other, uh, quote, regulatory experts that are making this claim that the FDA cannot catch up with the evolution of technology, which is kind of a different problem. I don't, I don't think that that person was necessarily speculating or suggesting that we add regulations, but, but maybe there was something else that they have in mind. I mean, where, do, you, do you have any, would you care to speculate, I suppose? Well, to be fair, John, of course, FDA has a challenge to keep up with technology. Let's face it, anybody in this industry, I personally have a PhD in biomedical engineering. I've been working in this field for almost 30 years now, and I have a challenge in keeping up with technology. I mean, it does it does change, but as I said, the more things change, the more they remain the same. But I don't think that's the problem here, because technology is always going to be uh, advancing. What That's a given. What doesn't change nearly as quickly is people's thinking. And I think that's perhaps the, to use the engineering phrase, yeah. the root cause here. So let me give you a couple of examples uh, from this area of uh, whether you want to call them general wellness devices or consumer devices or, uh, again, I don't think it's it's productive to get into, you know, the the, the semantics of the terminology here. But um, 
there was a, a, a blood pressure app that was brought onto the market about two years ago that was in the news a lot because it apparently reported blood pressure correctly only about 20% of the time, which meant that about 80% of the time it's yeah. wrong. Now, you can imagine that if a person is using that, that app to monitor their blood pressure and then they use that information in conjunction with their doctor to modify their, the, the, the medication that they're taking to increase the, or decrease the dose of a drug based on information coming from that device that's wrong, you can imagine the consequences. This is problem. exactly analogous to, mm. to um, insulin uh, monitors, for example, um, glucose monitors. Uh, and there have been a number of these kinds of devices that are, uh, you know, inaccurate at best. Uh, if I, met this, I, met, I, I mentioned Fitbits earlier, uh, Stanford last year did a study where they looked at um, about seven different fitness trackers, and six of the seven reported were reported to be accurate uh, about uh, within about five percent accuracy. The seventh one was not. There, there's a lot of examples, and as I've said before, John. There's no better way to ensure that we're going to have more regulation in the future, not less, but more regulation in the future than, quite frankly, if companies bring crappy products onto the market. So whether we have a product that's regulated by FDA or not, it does not, it does not excuse us from making sure that this product is reliable, this product is reasonably accurate. What exactly does accuracy mean? Does it have to be within 1%, within 5%, within 10%? Of course, that's subject to interpretation, but nonetheless, we have a responsibility to, to develop these, these um, these products with a, a, a reasonable degree of accuracy. Um, and the more companies don't do this, the more regulation, the more FDA oversight we're going to have. And believe me, John, you know, as a as proud medical device professional, you know, it pains me to say some of these things, but unfortunately there are some in our industry, you know, I guess there are always, you know, one or two bad apples in the barrel yeah. um, that, you know, kind of make it difficult for all of the rest of us that, that's are, true. that are doing this. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, I, I would say also that I, from my vantage point, from my perspective, it feels to me that, that the FDA has has done a, a pretty good job of trying to um, keep up with the technology ad advancement. I, you know, just look at some of the programs that are in place. You've we've talked to briefly uh, today and, and more in the past about the general wellness program. You just you mentioned an example, but there's also other programs like the breakthrough. Uh, device <clears throat> designation and 21st century cures and expedited access. And I know that, you know, some of these, these things might be familiar to folks, pre-certification program, and, you know, and even from some perspective, de novo uh, programs, they're all in place um, as vehicles or mechanisms for uh, that, that, you know, theoretically should help uh, enable uh, technology that's, you know, traditionally not med device, you know, to figure out that pathway, even a pre-submission, you know, which you and I have talked about in the past. That's correct, John. There's all kinds of programs that FDA has created over the, the years to try to incentivize companies to work in certain areas. You mentioned a number of them. Uh, another one that I would add to the list that was actually just ended a couple of months ago is the Opioid uh, Addiction Initiative. Um, I have several devices that were 
submitted it as part of that program, and we're supposed to hear back later this month uh, as to um, uh, the status. You mentioned the Breakthrough Designation Program, or BDP, one of uh, many of these programs that are near and dear to my heart, not to be self-serving, but I'm proud to say that I'm three for three thus far for the BDP. I have three medical devices that have been submitted and have been accepted into the BDP program, and I've got uh, several more that are in the queue. Unfortunately, and this is a topic of a different discussion, our FDA reviewers are having a difficult time understanding what the BDP program means to them. Because quite frankly, they're in one particular case, they're treating us exactly the same as any other medical device. So the question becomes, why the heck did we go through jumping the, through the hoops of getting into the BDP if we're not going to be treated differently? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So, right. so this is new for a lot of people. The pre-certification program, I think, uh, still relatively new, but I think potentially it's a it's a good idea. The way I like to describe that to people is, you're essentially certifying the people or the company as opposed to the actual device. I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, so the, 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 there's yeah. a lot of these different programs, and it's incumbent on us working in this industry to be aware of these so that we can take advantage of them <laughs> when they're appropriate. Uh, sure, you know. Uh, some of this, John, comes down comes back to FDA resources. You, you mentioned, um, can FDA, you know, keep track of all of these things? Well, just in the area of mobile medical apps alone, there are some 165,000 health and wellness apps on the market. Let's be, you know, honest, John. Nobody, including the FDA, can parse through that list one by one and say, is this a medical device or is it not? And one of the big problems, you know, we've talked about the wellness exemption. This is another area that I do an awful lot of work in. One of the significant problems that we have in this area, and I've pointed this out to the agency many times, it still has not been fixed. There is no mechanism in place where a company can go to the FDA proactively and say, here's our device. This is what it does. This is the way that it works. This is our labeling and so on. Uh, we believe it fits under the wellness exemption. Do you concur? There's no mechanism right. in place to, to allow a company to do that. And as a result, you're going to have more and more problems in the future because unfortunately, some companies don't go through that prophylactic analysis in advance to make sure that their device fits the criteria under general wellness, being mm -hmm. labeling technology and risk. Mm -hmm. And this is a huge problem. So uh, yeah, let me, if you don't mind, let me, let me expand upon that a little bit because the scenario that Mike just described is, you know, or postulated a bit is if there was a mechanism for a company who had a general, what they believe to be a general wellness device, they, they built their case and they uh, shared that with FDA for uh, a, a decision, yes or no, then that would determine sort of those next steps. But because there is not that step in place, there's kind of two things that happen. One is that a company may say, uh, you know, they may err on the side of being a more, I don't know if the word conservative is correct here, but the more conservative and, and actually consider themselves as a, a general wellness med device go through and the process and you know, maybe eventually submit a 510K and so on and so forth. So they may jump through a lot of hoops. Uh, whereas others may say, you know, eh, I'm going to roll the dice. So there's 165,000 uh, apps and products that are out there that, that uh, you know, how in the world is, is FDA going to see that? So I'm just going to go ahead and go to market. I'm not even going to, 
I'm going to beg for forgiveness later. I'm not going to ask the question. And, and that's sort of better to ask forgiveness than permission <laughs> strategy, which to be fair, I have used that strategy myself on occasion, yeah. as long as you understand what the risks are, you know, uh, for sure. but that, for is, sure. that is a strategy. Yeah. So uh, you know, I can give you an example, John, and let's say and I don't want to put you too much on the spot here, but let's say a company came to you and said, we're in the sock business, right? The kind of socks that you wear on your feet. And we have these new socks and we want to know from you, do we need to take these to the FDA? In other words, could we bring them onto the market without FDA oversight, i.e. the general wellness exemption? Or would we have to have treat them as a medical device, would we even need to get a 510K? How would you respond, John? Mike, what do, what do these socks do? <laughs> that's the first thing I have to ask. Uh, well, that's in fact the, the exact question yeah. that we want to ask, or to be a little bit more precise, it's not exactly what do they do or how do they work, but what do we want to say yeah, about right, right. So this comes back to the label claim. So if you make general wellness claims, I mean, most of your audience are probably familiar. If you go into a a CVS or a Walgreens or or even a Walmart, you'll see different kind of socks labeled as as energy socks and and other kinds of things. So if you make a weak claim like decreasing swelling or increasing circulation or decreasing fatigue or something like that, then that's those are what I call weak medical claims. Mm-hmm. And those can most likely be marketed legitimately without any under uh, any uh, FDA oversight uh, under the wellness exemption. However, the exact same sock, if you were to make slightly stronger medical claims like decrease the likelihood of thrombus or blood clot, decrease the likelihood of deep vein thrombosis or DVT leading right. to a pulmonary embolism. Those now are much stronger claims. And to make those kind of claims without going to the FDA first would be a little more of a regulatory risk. Sure. And just as a, in, in terms of examples, John, believe it or not, there are three product codes listed in the FDA database specifically on socks. Two of them are class two. LLK and DWL, DWL, those are both five, those are, those are not 510K exempt. There are about 70 pairs of socks or 70 models of socks, I guess you would call it, on the market that have 510Ks. So, and even in the class one world, there's one product code for socks that's class one, but it is also non-510K exempt. There's about a half a dozen socks that, that are listed under that particular product code. Yeah. So, you know, something as seemingly benign as socks, you know, there, there are a lot of socks, believe it or not, that have 510Ks. No, I believe that. I mean, you, you mentioned DVT. I mean, that's a that's a big deal, you know. And so, uh, th- these are high tech socks that we're talking about. And and folks, I mean, it, I, as a consumer, uh, I'm I'm personally I'm pretty excited when you start to think about companies like Apple entering into the med device space. You know, you you you're hearing things about Amazon and Google. We talked about Fitbit. You know, Bose uh, has a hearing aid device uh, that they're in, in some process of bringing to market. You know, I know of other companies who are uh, embedding electronics and sensors into different fabrics, you know, whether it be shirts or compression materials or, or what have you. So, you know, this, this technology will continue to advance. And as a consumer, 
theoretically improve my quality of life, you know? So, you know, it's, it's, it is, um, it is an exciting time, but, but uh, also to, to the point that Mike and I are talking about, it can't be a scary time. I mean, as the flip side of me, <laughs> as a 20 plus year med device uh, veteran, I'm like, all right, did, what did the company, what did this company do uh, to, to evaluate safety and efficacy, you know, and I, and I start to like a nerd, I go to the FDA website, like, I wonder if this company has 510k or if they've registered their product as a medical device. And if so, what was the product code and the regulation and all these sorts of things. So, you know, it's, um, sometimes I wonder if, if my knowledge helps me or hurts me on things like this. (laughs) (laughs) I have that problem myself frequently, John. So if I can kind of try to simplify this as much as I can as we start to wrap this up. Uh, Perhaps it will help you as well as the audience to maybe decouple the technology from the regulation a little bit. In other words, as we've talked about, you know, technology is advancing. There's no question about it. But the regulation, not so much. And so, as I said earlier, and I strongly believe this, good regulation is independent of time. It is also independent of technology. So really what it comes down to is whether you were talking about the Apple Watch, whether you're talking about one of these uh, 165,000 mobile medical apps, whether you're talking about uh, a Fitbit or even something as seemingly simple as a pair of socks, what it really comes down to is one uh, central question, and that is, does it fit the CFR definition of a medical device? If you need, if you think it does, then most likely you need to take it to the FDA. If you think it does not, then most likely it doesn't. But the point is you have to go through that analysis. So that's all sort of message number one and message number two. And I know we've talked about this before, John, regardless of whether you have to take your product to the FDA or not, that's not an excuse to, um, to, 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 to do sloppy engineering. You know, I regrettably, and once again, I take absolutely no pleasure in saying this, there are a few companies, granted not many, who have come to me and asked me to help them with their particular medical device. And I have had to say to them, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Usually, you know, I make a convenient excuse. I'm sorry, I'm just too busy. Uh, I can't help you at the time. But oftentimes, that's a polite way of me saying that, with all due respect, your medical device is, you know, a bunch of you-know-what, or you're trying to use the met the uh um, general wellness exemption is simply an excuse to get a, get around getting to the F, going to the FDA, and uh, that's problematic. Um, yeah. So those are just a couple of takeaway messages that I would share with the audience, John. What words of wisdom would you would you uh, leave us with? Yeah. So I know a lot of you folks out there listening. I mean, you you may be in this space where you're you know a quote non traditional med device, you know, a, a technology type of product. So you know, definitely uh, heed um, Mike's uh, advice. And you know, as Mike pointed out a little bit today, and and I'll point out even more. You know, he is he is the best in this market as far as regulatory strategy. And, you know, he's, he's the, he knows all of the programs and the opportunities and the pathways. And, and so, you know, if, if in any way, shape or form, you think that you're going to be, you know, a a French case or, you know, have some interest in exploring, you know, different options, Mike is your guy. He knows all of the programs at FDA and and other regulatory pathways and other markets as well. So reach out to Mike Drews at Vascular Sciences. But my advice or my take home for is for 
those who are listening who may be um, more traditional, I'll say bread and butter med device companies who look at other industries as you know, not invented here, sort of, you know, I think sometimes those of us who have been in the medical device industry for any period of time, we, I don't know, we have a certain error about us and I'm generalizing, of course, but, um, and what I mean by that is sometimes we say, oh, well, you know, that company over there, they're, they make cars or this company over there, they make uh, consumer electronics or this company over there, they make, they make uh, software or whatever the case may be. And, and we almost discount them as having contributions to, to our, the medical device industry. Folks, we have to embrace what these other companies are doing because a lot of these companies, are, are their, their technology is advancing very, very quickly. You know, they're state-of-the-art, they're leading edge. And we should learn, take an opportunity to learn from what these companies are doing and how you know, creative they, they are applying technology. And there's something that we can apply uh, from those best practices outside of the medical device industry and bring those into the medical device industry. Then, then I think we're all going to be better off for that. I think those are terrific words of wisdom to leave the audience with, John. And uh, uh, I appreciate those kind words that you said about me. You're putting me up on a very high pedestal, so I hope. Well, you always uh, deliver. To those expectations. You always deliver, Mike. And and once again, thank you so much for for being uh, a guest on uh, the Global Medical Device Podcast, folks. If you um, want to, you know, figure out how to to adapt your Design control risk management, we've talked a little bit about that today. What, what does that mean? Essentially, you know, how are you um, managing your product development efforts? And are you doing so in a way that's, that's good, prudent engineering? Well, I would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru, learn more about the Greenlight Guru EQMS software platform. And for those, you know, especially as you start to, to commercialize these products, uh, you know, there are things that you need to address from a quality management system. And I'll just say we've got you covered. We built that into the platform uh, so that you can continue to focus on advancing your technology and have assurance that the, your EQMS platform is state-of-the-art and up-to-date with the latest, greatest thinking from a regulatory perspective. So be sure to go check out Greenlight Guru. And Folks, uh, continue uh, to listen to the Global Medical Device Podcast every you know couple of weeks or so. There's there's a new exciting topic that we're covering, so appreciate that and continue to spread the word. And um, you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. <laughs>